Hey everybody, welcome back to Improv Town. As always, I am your host, Clayton Mashad, and holy crap, do I have a fantastic episode for you today. I was fortunate enough recently to interview Dave Rozowski. If you don't know who Dave Rozowski is, then uh, why are you listening to my podcast? If you don't know who he is, Dave Rozowski is former artistic director of Second City Hollywood. He studied with Del Close back in the 80s. He is the fantastic host of the ADD comedy podcast, which I highly recommend. Check out the Susan Messing episode, check out the McNapier episode, check out the Ali Farinakian episode, check out the Brian O'Connell episode, check out Pack Improv podcast where Miles Stroth interviews him. Just check out the, the Pack Improv podcast in general because it's fantastic. Check out the Improv Nerd episode where uh, Jimmy Crane interviews him. He is fantastic. He is an improv guru. Everything he says is brilliant. And in this episode, we uh, not only talk about his background, him studying with Dell, him performing with Stephen Carell and Stephen Colbert and Rachel Dratch and all of those fantastic people, but we also get to talk about why he disagrees with every improv rule that we tend to follow. So we talk about why he hates Yes And, why he thinks taking suggestions at the beginning of a set is stupid, why he hates exposition, and lots of other things that he disagrees with everything that we learn, and convincingly so. He is a fantastic improv teacher. I fucking love this conversation. We did this when I got to take a workshop with him in Boston. It was fantastic. I am pretty sure I'm going to post the notes from that workshop attached somehow to this episode. I'll post a link to Viewpoints, which is an idea uh, that he loves using in improv that a lot of people don't talk about. I'll post some notes to that, and you're going to love it. As always, if you love this podcast, or if you at least tolerate it, rate and review us on wherever you listen to podcasts, and enjoy! My big phrase is this. It's the phrase, I can do that. You know what I mean? Where you go, right, yeah. well, here's the challenge to me. I, I think I can do that. I think I can do that. I can do that. And then I found myself saying it without really even thinking about it, where I'll just look at something like rewiring a lamp. I don't know. I'll just look at a lamp. And I think, I, I guess I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. Yeah. yeah it's very, <laughs> very freeing way to look at things. Absolutely. Because the only difference between thinking that you could do it and not thinking that you could do it is thinking you could do it or not thinking you could do it. Right. And you're right on both counts. If you don't think you can do it, then you're not going to do it. If you think you can do it, then you can do it. So that's where I am with that. Are we, have we started? Yeah. I love it. That's great. Great. Do whatever yeah. you want. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just kind of started because it was like I wanted to do an improv podcast for a while. Originally, like, you know, doing improv. And then... I was like, well, that's just going to be really hard to, like, coordinate with, you know, multiple people and stuff. Right. I was like, well, I know people who I think are really good at improv. Maybe I'll just talk to them about whatever specific thing I think they're good at. Oh, I love that. That's great. And then and then what ends up happening is you always steer off into some other place. You always go somewhere else. Because nobody wants to talk about improv for 45 minutes. I mean, maybe people do. I don't know. But it, it gets so inside baseball where you start talking about things that, I don't know people would be interested in hearing, but I guess if you and I are having an interesting conversation, it's going to be interesting. If you want to be interesting, be interested. So that's how that works. Yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of people who don't mind listening to, to people talk about improv for, for hours. <laughs> exactly. There's a woman that uh, has hired me to work with her in um, a, a class in uh, in Florida, and she's quite she's quite great. And we've been going back and forth about what the what the weekend's going to look like and she wants me to teach like nine hours in a row and I'm I, thinking I can't do that I mean I can do that I'm sure I know I can do that I can do that but I don't know that I'd want to anymore right you know after six hours yeah six is kind of the that's what I do I do six hours I do three hours I'll take a break and do the three hours and I could do that because I will work with you over and over and over again but you know after seven hours or eight hours I'm like I gotta I because it is exhausting it's exhausting. It's tiring. And 
I want to say it's exhausting as, as digging a ditch. You know, it really is. It, like at the end of an eight hour session, I have nothing left other than knowing how to order a vodka on the rocks at the bar. <laughs> you know, and that's all that I really have to do or, you know, sit at a restaurant and eat and then I'm done. And that's one of the reasons that when somebody hires me to come in, I don't want to stay at your apartment or your house. Cause right. when I'm done, I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk about improv anymore. Don't want to talk about it anymore. Good thing I got you before. You, right. Well, before I, you talk rather than after. Well, I, I would, I would sit and talk to you about it afterwards because that's going to be a different experience because we're going to have the source material of the class in order to, to talk. But if we're going to come out straight right ahead and talk, you know, uh, but eight hours of eight hours of teaching improv is just way too long. It's just way too long. Yeah, because you have to watch it. I feel like it's the same thing. Like watching eight hours of improv would be hard enough, even if you weren't responsible for. Yeah, and as an improv teacher, if you're and the way that I teach is if you and when you and your partner are on are on stage, when you and your partner are on stage, it's not just the two of you; it's the three of you. It's actually four of us. I'm watching what you're doing. I'm watching what she's doing. I'm watching what I'm doing. I'm watching what there's more. There, it's it's multi level level because you are you. I am you. She is she. I am she. Does that make sense? Uh, the choices that you're making. I'm following those choices, and I'm me as an audience member watching this thing as well. So I'm looking at it, and as a teacher, and as a director, and as an auteur. Uh, the auteur being what is my particular improv style because when you're working with me I'm not going to do your dumb improv style I'm going to do my dumb improv style <laughs> does that make sense right yeah you know if you if you're looking for yes and I'm not your guy I'm clearly not your guy because I don't give a fuck about yes and my focus is what's your point of view holding on to your point of view holding on to your point of view until you emotionally change and then grabbing another point of view and to say that I don't like yes and it's not it's not true but what's true is I don't like the coming in and and saying, I have to say yes and to everything. Well, you don't have to say yes and to everything. And that's the way that I work. So I'm not going to do your dumb reindeer games. I'm going to do my own dumb reindeer games. Right. I think this is the language that I've heard you use, but being in service to the other person. So, you know, yes and is like the beginner way of doing that, but that's all. The yes and is to, you know, to that end. It is not the only, no, not the only way to be in service to your partner. And when, and when, when we say service to your partner, I think it's, it's important. I mean, for me, I feel like me being in service to my partner, who is my partner? I mean, is my partner the character that I'm, I'm in relationship with? Or is my partner the actor that is behind the character? of who right. I'm playing with. Yeah, and I think that that's what, for me, it's that latter part. Yeah, I think that's a distinction that doesn't, that we don't really ad address a lot. Clearly! And that's why people don't understand it because like, oh, you gotta say yes to everything. It's like, the fuck you gotta say yes to everything? But that's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, it is not explained well because, uh, and you've probably heard me say this before, it's so many improv teachers are teaching an echo. They're teaching what they've been told they have to teach. And the students aren't really getting it because they're not understanding it on the level that those pr practicing it are practicing it. Because all the improvisers that I know, and I know so many, and as you do too, they're not saying yes and to everything. That's just boring and it's children's theater and who the fuck wants to watch that? There, I'm watching that I'm participating in this to grab onto a point of view, to really milk the, sh the, the shit out of it, to pull this stuff out of you, what, what you may or may not want to say. And it's not to say that everything has to be, you know, all angry or it's also everything doesn't have to be happy puppy loves kitty town. But if you say I'm hungry in a scene, I'm going to go off of that. And if I say, then eat something, I want you to say, nah, I'm hungry. Like, yeah, he say, he said no. Yes, let's go. Because you said, okay. Right, that problem solved. Are we, but exactly, we've solved the problem. Be the problem. Be the problem. And I will watch you be the problem. And I will feed you being the problem enhancer so that you can kill, still keep being the problem. Because I want you to be the problem. The moment your problem is solved, it's like, oh, okay. And yes and doesn't mean to say yes to everything. Yeah, most of the time saying yes to the player which half the time the player wants you to say no to the character. Absolutely. But the moment that, yes, right. 
And the moment that a, an improv teacher or, you know, somebody that I don't want to work with would say, ah, 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 we're going to stop the scene there. He said no. Or we're going to stop the scene there. What did he do wrong, class? He said no. You can't say no. It's like, oh, 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 no. I'm gone. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Because I just don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we already... Uh... Got to super inside baseball. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, we know who our audience is. <laughs> yeah. So normally, I start like the first half is normally kind of just like an unstructured kind of bio where I have people talk about themselves. But I feel like in the for the sake of time, since we don't have that much time, and you have a very storied, you know, improv <laughs> career. Whatever you want to do, that's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you know a lot of that stuff is. Go listen to your. They can go listen to your podcast if they want to. <laughs> so I just figured I'd just ask some some questions about you know your career that that I think are particularly interesting. For, Lovely for a little bit, and then we can talk about your like teaching style and great improv theories. So if I'm not wrong. You started doing so first. You were an actor, right? And then you started your improv career doing dramatic improv in prisons. Right. Well, I was thinking about this the other day my origin story I was thinking about this the other day my family moved you know maybe three or four times before we came to this one particular house in Chicago and my mom hooked me into this class called drama I remember saying what's drama and it was this woman Esther Wykel and she was essentially a kids class of improv games but you didn't call it that back then you just right. you just didn't call it that in uh 67, 68. You know, nobody knew what that was, really. And so we were doing improv games. So at that time, I really wrapped my head around that. And then she cast me, this woman, Esther, cast me in shows as the kid in the adults show. And I started doing it that way. And then I went to, I went to college. My dad was like, you know, you, you, you can't get a degree in theater. Even though I'd been doing theater, by the time I got to college, I was doing theater for 10 years. I got a degree, then I got a degree in photojournalism. And when I left, uh, everything was booming theatrically in Chicago and improvisationally in Chicago. Mayor Daly, Richard J. Daly had died. The, the, the constraints on what you were, uh, what you were allowed to do in storefront theaters or what you were allowed to do in storefronts, what you couldn't do in storefronts, that was let go, that was surrendered. And now all these theaters were coming into Chicago and doing storefront theater and storefront improvisation. And I just happened to be coming in at that time, having done, uh, one show in college and, I hooked up with Improv Olympic, now known as IO, with Tell Close, and that really... Oh, I'm sorry. Before that was, when I, when I graduated, I was doing... Uh, I auditioned for a theater company called Geese Theater Company that performed in prisons across the United States. Did non-comedic, therapeutic, quotation marks, educational, rehabilitational, mask work improvisation in prisons across the United States. So that was intense. And that yeah, was, that was dramatic. That sounds intense. It was intense. And then when you're 25 years old, you know, uh, and this is true of anything, you know, you feel like I can do anything. And at that moment, I didn't really know improvisation, uh, according to what they wanted. And they wanted it to be brought down. They wanted it to be, they wanted to be grounded and they wanted to be real and they wanted to deal with the issues that the incarcerated were dealing with at that time. So we lived on a 53 foot school bus. We traveled around the country. I think we put 20,000 miles on this 1963 three speed international harvester school bus converted into, you know, like a garage that you slept in. And, uh, we did that across the, the United States. So it wasn't really comedic at the, it wasn't comedic really at that right. time at all. It was a lot of movement. It was a lot of things that I felt at that moment were different than when anybody else was doing a career that was any, anybody else's career in theater because nobody saw us. The only people that saw us were people that were in prisons and the people that worked there. So if you were there to do it for any other reason other than the expression of doing that, then you were, you know, you're in the wrong place. If you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get famous by doing improvisation in prison, that's not going to work. That's just not going to work. So at that time, it really, and, and I haven't really thought about this, but at that time, it made me a different sort of improviser. It made me look at the world in a very different way, look at improvisation in a very different way, look at theater in a different way, look at people in a different way, look at the underclass in a different way, which really fed quite nicely into a few years later when I went to Second City and t- started taking classes there because that you needed to have 
in, you needed to have information about it in order to create satire and parody and you had to have all that information and be connected to the people that you were that were essentially your audience so it was sort of a um, Commedia dell'arte sort of thing where it was a combination of Commedia dell'arte where you play stock characters and you plop you plop in plot you know regional ideas and things like that uh, so it was a combination of that but it's also freeing because you weren't playing those stock characters but you have to still know you still have to know who's the mayor of that town uh, and when you're when you're touring with the second city one of the things you really want to do is in Akron who what restaurant just closed in Akron who's who's zooming who and just to pop those things in they go oh my god they wrote this skit for us uh, where it's like okay, now we just have kind of Mad Libs. That's so interesting. I never thought about, never thought about that aspect. Which aspect? Of touring. Of touring. Yeah. Of, of um, you know, knowing local stuff in order to put it in the show. Yeah, well, that's that's a major part of, of satire is really getting to know what it is that was going on. It's also a major part of uh, a geese company, the theater in prisons, where you really had to get to know the people. You had to get to know these people's lives and what that was like. Because twenty-five year old Jewish guy, you know, middle class Chicago, um, very, you know, every once in a while getting in trouble with the law, but not prison law. You know, it it required homework. It required you to do homework, and the homework that you did, you have to look at it in a way where you, you say. This isn't something that I have to do. This is something that I get to do. Because when you look at something and say, well, this is something that I have to do, there's an obligation that you feel. When you say this is something that I get to do, then you go, oh, this is part of my life and it's just, it, it's, it's, a, it's surrounding me and I have to hold on to that. So that when I do go to one of these places, I have something in my pocket, you know, to throw out there. Right. Yeah. I think that's super important with art in general, but like, but improv. That you never want to, you never want to have that feeling of like, oh, I have to go to, I have to go to practice tonight. Oh my gosh. When you start looking at things like that, I'm always very careful when I say, when I'm teaching uh, or performing, it's not even, I don't even have to think about it, but I do, when, when this phrase pops up, I go, uh oh, I just had a change where I say, oh, I got to go to work. And if I say I got to go to work, I, at that moment that that came out, kinesthetically came out, I say to myself, I just called it work. Is it work? Has it turned into work? Because if it's turned into work, I, do I want to work? Because this wasn't work when I first started it. And if I want this to be work, then I have to look at it in that way. And that's not a big thing because I don't really, I don't really like to work. I like to get paid. I like to do what right. it is that I get to pay, get paid to do. But I, I haven't worked, I haven't worked in years. I, I haven't worked in years. I don't go to work. I don't work. I play. Uh, I work. I play. I live. I unfold. I, unf I unfurl. I evolve. I, I I go through my life playing. And I guess I do work. And my job is being Dave Rosaski, and that's my job. You know, uh, we all have our job, and our job title is our name, and that's my job. My job is to do that. My job is to be Dave Rosaski. And what does that mean? That means just whatever it is, new products that I have on the market, which is like thoughts that I have, or ideas that I have, or concepts that I have, or exercises that I have, that we're, we're unveiling a concept, and it's always beta. You know, nothing's ever, it's not like, oh, we're, we're releasing this. Because once you release it, I think that that's when work comes in. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's the the process over product. Yes, exactly. Idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. The product is the process. Right. Yeah. So, so I asked you a question. And then you you start talking. You mentioned Dell. Right. And then jumped back to the other question, and then then we jump forward. And I just feel like the uh, the listening audience is going to be mad. They're like, "Who was about to? Who was about to start talking about?" With the taking classes with Dell, then oh, I see. Then, oh no, we could always go back to like, Dell. Uh, yeah, just don't change, change the subject. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dell, it was uh, it, welcome to to my world. Um, yeah. So you want me to talk more about Dell? Uh, yeah. Just mean you finished the, the thought. You I can't remember what the thought was. What was the thought? So, so first you did the prison right. Improv, oh, right. I did and the then you and then, and then we started talking about second seat, but you did. IO first. Oh, well, yeah, I did IO. I did Improv Olympic before that. Thank you for, for pointing that out because I, I am stream of conscious. Uh, stream of, stream of unconscious would be more like it. That's got to be a phrase. Stream of unconsciousness. <gasps> That's a good phrase. So my fifth year, I did, I did five years of college. I got a degree in photojournalism, um, which I really love. I did five years of college and my fifth year, I thought, I want to get back into theater and I auditioned for a show and I, it was called The Firebox by Max Frisch and I really loved it. It was really, really cool. And, uh, and I thought, oh, oh, I, I, 
you know, why was I not doing this? Uh, and then I got back into theater and then I left and I graduated and I, uh, applied for a bunch of jobs, uh, as a photojournalist and I didn't get any, thank God. And I got a job as a selling cameras at a camera store, uh, in, on the north, northwest side of Chicago, north, northwest side. Um, and I got that job and then I started, I heard about this guy, Del Close or uh, Improv Olympic. I have no idea. That's a missing part of my brain. Like, how did I know about that? Because at that time, there weren't, there, there, there was Second City. There was uh, Dudley Riggs in Minnesota. There was Second City, Dudley Riggs. Oh, maybe Keith Johnstone. Uh, um, yeah, maybe Loose Moose. Yeah, Loose Moose up in Canada. You know, certainly those three. And there was, you know, there, there was Players Workshop, which is a cousin of Second City. So maybe there are four, four, four places that taught improvisation. Four places. Like college didn't teach it. Four places. So in my mind, I'm thinking, how did I know about that? So I went over to, uh, I went over to IO, or Improv Olympic, um, in Chicago. Um, and I went over there and I talked to this woman named Sharna Halperin and I said, I just, Graduate. I just uh, left a theater company that performed prisons across the United States. She goes, "Oh, you'll, you you could skip my class, go right to Dell." I'm like, "Who's Dell?" And um, uh, and at that time, it was a really, really, it was an amazing time because he was sober, and there it wasn't all that popular, and there were I was the second house team, and when I say the second house team, I don't mean at that theater. You mean ever? I mean ever. <laughs> you know, so you know. And, so what, what was the name of that team? It was called Grime and Punishment, Grime and uh, Grime and Punishment. And on what that was team, the first, what was the first team ever? Oh, that was Barons Barracudas. So that oh, was yeah. Dave Pesquese and uh, let's see, Dave Pesquese, Mark Beltzman. It was just like all these great people: Honor Finnegan, uh, Bill Russell. It was just, it was just an amazing group of people, and John Judd. And, and what would happen is, because Dell, that was the first house team. That was the team that Dell loved those guys. And I loved watching those guys. And I remember sitting there and anybody who's ever really fell in love with, with improvisation, fell in love with improvisation, not because it was a conceptual thing, but fell in love with improvisation because they witnessed something quite wonderful. They witnessed someone doing something quite wonderful. And when they witnessed somebody doing something quite wonderful, they're like, I know for me, I thought, I could do that. I could do that. I think I could do that. I, that scares the shit out of me, but I can do that. And when you witness something or somebody doing that, that's called inspiration. And when you're inspired and you have an opportunity to do that, that's what I did. So I looked at Barons Barracudas and I felt like there's just no way, and this is another thing that people go through, there's just no way that they're making that up. Right. There's just no way that this is extemporaneous. There's just no way that this is ad-libbed. This has to be written. And then you realize, no, no, it's not. It's not. And so really my first class in improvisation was with Dell, who, and it was just really interesting because I'm reading this book called Improv Nation by Sam Wasson. And in it, he's describing, he just described this one. Uh, I just got up and grabbed the book. That's why the sounds work. So... In this one section that I just read, it's about Dell working with the committee in, this is really inside baseball, Dell working with the committee in San Francisco, and it described the rehearsals. And the rehearsals were this, and this is, this was exactly, this was exactly what the classes were with Dell in 83, 84. It was, Dell had something on his mind. Dell had a concept. Dell saw something. Dell liked to color. Dell had food that reminded him of something. And he would just get up and for 45 minutes of a three hour class, he would just ramble and he, and then not, not ramble, but he would just lecture us and you'd go, what, what, what? And the what, what, what are things like he'd talk about Lenny Bruce and he'd talk about Lord Buckley and he'd talk about art and he'd talk about, and, and, and every once in a while in a class, he would say, all right, um, everybody does the same Dell. Um, <laughs> all right. What's everybody reading? And, um, no matter what, People would raise their hand and Dell would know that book, know the author, know other books by that author, and know other books that were similar to that author. And his whole thing was no stuff. Stop reading books on, on theater. I don't know how many books on, there must have been books on theater back then, but start reading, like go to the Art Institute, go to the, 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 the Lyric Opera, go to, go to see shows, go to see movies that you wouldn't, wouldn't ever be cast in. Go to see movies, just go. 
And he would talk about it. And then after a while, he goes, all right, we're going to do scenes that are Paisley. And like, I don't know what the hell that means, but let's go. So at that time, everybody, it was, it was phenomenal. Because keep in mind, no one was doing this. Right. No one. There was no classes that were Dell classes. And then he turned a bunch of people on that turned a bunch of people on. And oh, so in Grime and Punishment, uh, Mick Napier was in that class. And that's where I met Mick. And then Mick and I decided that we wanted to take what we were doing and go out into the world with a bunch of other people. And that's where the Annoyance Theater came from, right from there. So that's where the Annoyance Theater came from. And that's where all that came. That came out of classes that was, Dell was in. Uh, was Susan Messing? Susan Messing was there. Oh, absolutely. Susan credits me for being in the first improv scene that she ever saw at Improv Olympic with Richard Label and I, and she says, that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, yeah, and it was pretty great. And then we did uh, Splatter Theater at the space that uh, we rented in the building where uh, Improv Olympics were, and that was the first real production that the Annoyance ever did. Yeah, that was the first production the Annoyance ever did crazy man yeah it's really crazy it's really crazy and so when this guy sam wasson w-a-s-s-o-n wrote this book and it is a great book it's a great read uh improv nation i and i'm not just saying that because i'm quoted on the back cover but it's (laughs) it's that that book is a great history of improvisation that no one has done before and it's laid out really really well and i just can't recommend it enough yeah i'll have to check it out i have uh all of those books like Art by Comedian. Yeah. Wonderful right away. Yeah, yeah, those books are great. And certainly Something Wonderful Right Away is just great. Uh, this, this goes deeper than all that. What I love about Something Wonderful Right Away is its oral history and really getting to know all these people. And it's really cool because I look at that book and I go, I remember reading that right. book way back when. And now I look through that book and I go, oh, I know that person. That person's a friend of mine. I know that person. I know that person. I know that person. Yeah. So it's really it's amazing. It really is amazing. It's amazing. In our small little universe, that there's this book and Jeffrey Sweet who wrote it I, he's a friend of mine <laughs> you know when he was on my podcast so I, I look at all that and I think I don't know how I ended up so what Sam Wasson did was he connected with me the author of that book connected with me and said you were at a golden age of improvisation in Chicago and I was like oh was I and then I realized oh yeah it was golden age it was golden age it was an amazing time yeah just other improv podcasts that I listen to sometimes and he Oh, Who, who's he? Stephen Pearlstein. So it's improv obsession. Okay. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he's, he's you know, he always he'll say he'll say we're in the golden age of of improv, referring to referring to now because there's so many theaters. Oh, he's talking so, about now. Yeah. This is back in the right. 80s, so that's yeah. why that, that was the question that I was going to ask yeah. you. Whether you think back then with you know with Dell and with all those people, the formation, whereas now. He's like, there's, there's four improv theaters in the entire world. Now there's four improv theaters. Uh, in this block. In, in this block. Right, it's like the Starbucksization of improvisation. Yeah. I guess the question was, do you, do you think it's more of, that it's more of a golden age back then or now? Uh, I understand. I totally understand your question. And, uh, I guess it depends how you define golden age. Yeah, well, clearly, clearly. There's not, there's, it's not like a, that's fact-based. Um, it's all truth-based. But I feel like now is... People have figured out how to monetize it. And in the monetization of it all, it's become a very different beast. Because at that time, I don't know that Dell was looking for a career. I know that Sharna was, was, Sharna was looking for, who was, you know, right, uh, yeah. connected. And she opened up that theater and she was the person that understood structure, understood improvisation, was certainly, was an acolyte of Dell and was his, largest booster and really we have to give her a tremendous amount of credit if not the most credit for where it is that we are right now and I've I've talked to her about that but she she wrote truth and comedy she wrote that she wrote that think about it as like as maybe being Adele oh yeah well well, no no I think that Sharna did write it but I also think that Howard Johnson also wrote it and Howard Johnson was in Barron's Barracudas as well so he was in that first improv troupe too in addition to knowing all the Monty Python guys like like not not just knowing them but being friends with all those Monty Python guys like what the fuck anyway um, what I going back to and I'm going to hold on to it because that question was asked and I'm going to uh, honor that I would say that right now it is a golden time for 
people understanding the power of improvisation because you now have applied improv like that that whole universe that's right there people looking at improvisation in a very different way at that time it was the onus the genesis the starting of improvisation of improv as we know it right now i think that people people took more chances i'm being very careful because i don't know this to be true but i'm going to say it anyway you'll get the letters uh, i think people took more chances back then because it wasn't defined and um i remember certain things where delph said all right that's what we're gonna do today we're gonna improvise a movie and we're like improvise a movie how do we improvise a movie keep in mind no one improvised a movie right and we're gonna improvise a movie okay um all right uh, john cassavetes i'm like I have no idea who John Cassavetes is at that time. Didn't know who he was, but I remember doing a scene um, <laughs> where we I was just paying attention to my partner, being connected to my partner, and afterwards tell one, that was great, Cassavetes. That was like Cassavetes. I'm like, okay, I have no idea who we're talking about. But at that time, Dell did that. Dell also did a thing where it was like, again, how his mind worked. I remember him doing two heralds on stage at the same time. And you go, what is, what, why? Who knows why? If you're asking why, the why doesn't matter, the how doesn't matter, nothing matters other than we we have this guy here who's facilitating us to do things that we've never done before, who's midwifing this thing in a way that we've never done it before. And I didn't really know his provenance. I didn't know who he was or where he was right, from. Yeah. It didn't matter to me. I wasn't looking for a guru. I wasn't looking for anybody. I was looking for this. I just came from agitprop theater doing theater in prisons like fucking crazy stuff to this guy and there is a what there's an intersection where these where the venn diagram the, the intersection right there is it's big it's large what what i was taught with john bergman and geese company what is taught by dell you know essentially it all came down to this know as much as you know about as many things as you know and and surrender to the idea of your well, the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. And yeah. don't look at that as a daunting thing. And don't look at that as a challenge. Just look at that as the more I know that I don't know, the more exciting stuff gets. So then uh, you went to Second City. I went to Second you City. Performed with Corel and Yeah, but there's pieces missing here. So, I, so, I, yeah, I <laughs> yeah, so the pieces, the, mis the missing pieces is, was this. Uh, my dad kept saying, when are you going to audition for Second City? I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And I'm a big guy on knowing when I'm ready, knowing when I'm ready. And, and, you know, everybody is a big guy on knowing when they're ready. So I wasn't ready to do that yet. And then one day I decided I'm ready to do that. And I auditioned for the training center at Second City. And I got into the training center at Second City. I was in the training center at Second City. Mick was in the training center at Second City. Ahead of me, this guy, Richard Label, was in the training center at Second City, like all these people were ahead of me. And I would go and you can't, you can't do this anymore, but I would go and sit in the audience and watch my friends be in class. I wouldn't participate in it. I would audit it um, because Martin DeMott was there and I love Martin. He was a friend of all of ours and he was a great teacher, a uh, really, really inspiring man. Michael Galman, a really great teacher, really inspiring man. I would sit and watch them and then I would have those teachers as teachers. And so I just dump myself into this thing whole hog so I, I went to second city then i auditioned for the touring company and then i got into the touring company i was surprised that i got into the touring company and a couple of my people that i grew up with you know grew up quotation marks with uh mick didn't get into the touring company he he auditioned twice and he never got in um <laughs> but everybody has their path so oh so i ran and told this one teacher that i had who i loved donnie DePaulo, donnie DePaulo, um great teacher second city alumni really really great man i said and he was always at the this bar called the El Town Ale House. And I ran in like, ah, I want to show you my report card. And I ran in and I said, Donnie, 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 I got into the touring company. He's like, great. Here's the plan. Do your job. Don't gossip. Leave when you're done. Like, whoa, cool. And that's what I did. Never gossiped. Every day that I was there, every day that I was there, if it ended that day, I was fine. And it ended on my terms. It ended, I left before I was bitter because a lot of people don't, uh, which I never understood. So yeah, so then Gelman was one of my teachers there and Gelman said one day while I was in the training center, he said, I direct a show called The Seed Show and I want you to audition for The Seed Show. And what essentially is they take five writers, like a playwright, a poet, a journalist, a sketch writer, you know, an industrial writer, whatever the fuck that is. And he has us improvise for them ideas that they have. Then those guys go back, write a one act, 
and then come back with us. And then we just start creating that one act through improvisation. So I remember going to the audition at the Organic Theater in Chicago and sitting in the lobby and just talking to some guy. And then we go in and the guy blew me away, like blew me away. And again, keep in mind, it's a nascent improvisation. Nobody, you don't see that much. And so here's a guy that I don't even know. And, and I thought if that's the quality of work, that is being out there. I have no idea what I'm doing. And, and it was like, that was Steve Carell. <laughs> it was Carell. I'm like, you know, and at that time, and I think everybody has to know this. You're your name until you, what I mean by that is this. You're your name. Carell was Carell before he was Carell. You know what I mean? Like I'm Dave Rosowski and I've always been Dave Rosowski. And then one day, maybe everybody will know my name, but everybody that you're working with at that time, that was Steve. That was just this guy named Steve Carell. And there's just this guy named Stephen Colbert. And then this guy with, you know, there's other examples, like a guy at Second City that always wanted to get in the touring company and never got in the touring company. He worked the back bar and all this sort of stuff and he never made it. And then one day he broke up with his girlfriend and moved to California and wrote this screenplay called Swingers. And that's John Favreau. And when I knew him, he was this guy named John Favreau. And now he's John Favreau. <laughs> you know, A-list director, just amazing. Just amazing. And everybody is entitled to the journey that they're on, and their journey is very different than anybody else's journey. So then, obviously, we're skipping tons, but then you ended up artistic director for... Oh my God, that's a lot of skipping stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was in the touring company, and then I was, and then I got cast in the main stage, and we did shows at Second City Northwest, which is in a suburb, uh, Arlington Heights, Hoffman Estates of, of Chicago. And then you get moved down to a, another resident company. I got moved down to another resident company, which is the ETC company in the back of the theater at Second City, and that was really great. About 250 seats. And then I got uh, moved up to the resident company, the main stage company, which is eight shows a week. Pretty amazing. You know, 300 people. It's pretty phenomenal job. Paid. It vested me in, in, um, uh, actors equity. So now I get a pension. Um, yeah, I mean, that's great and rare. And it, it, it is. Oh, oh, absolutely. But an important distinction here is to know that Second City is not an improv theater. Right. Yeah. yeah Second City is a theater. And there is improv, but it's, it's scripted material created through improvisation. And the distinction is important for me because this is just an example. So when there are the, the Joseph Jefferson Awards, which is the equivalent of it's Chicago's Tony Awards, the Joseph Jefferson Awards awards or nominates actors in Second City pieces to be up against somebody that has been in a Chekhov show at the Goodman Theater or, you know, somebody at the Steppenwolf Theater or, you know, those kind of productions, comedy, comedy, review, it's all seen as, as theater. And I think that's really important because when I'm the director of Second City, yes, my responsibility is to create a funny show. But first and foremost, my responsibility is to have the actors up there portray humans in as best a way as they can because it's theater. And all improv is theater. All improv is acting. All improv is acting. And so when you're on stage doing something that you don't feel, then you're not human and you're not acting. You're just doing something that you feel obligated to do. And I'm going to notice it and I'm not going to be interested in your dumbass show. I'm just not going to be interested in your stupid improv show. If you're going to go up there and your main thing is have somebody guess the phrase, chicken's what's having for breakfast time. It's like, okay, all right. Chicken's what's having. That's 45 minutes of my life that I will never get back. So in addition to your qualms with Yes I Am, also heard you say that you don't like when people just lay out the who, what, where. The, the, the exposition. Right, exposition in an initiation. Yes. Does that come from the same feeling that like, well, no one really talks like that. No one says like, you're my son and today I'm going to teach you how to build a fire for the first time. <laughs> That's exactly it. I've gone, oh, really? Are you guys robots? Nobody talks like that. And then the moment, and I think that this is what it's all about. The moment that you say that in my head, oh, that's what happens. I go in my head. That's exactly what I, what happens. I go in my head and what I go to is, you're my dad. Cause I think that's what you said, right? Yeah. Son, you're my dad. What was the next thing that you said? I'm going to teach you how to build a Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's, let's pull that apart. I'm going to teach you. It's like, is there going to be a test? And how are we going to do this? How to build, oh my God, tools, whoever had a fire. Where are we? that we can light a fire for the first time. How is it that I've never known how to build a fire prior to this moment? That's a lot of crap. Yeah, process. It's a lot of stuff to process. That's so much. 
to process. And what it does to me is anything that puts me into my, my brain, that puts me into the thinking, the figuring shit out mode, I have no desire to do that. Because what I'm thinking and what you're thinking are two different things. So what we have to do is find that place where the both of us can connect. So in your head, you have an idea of sun, build, fire, first time. Okay, that's what it looks like in your head. That's not what it looks like in my head. It looks, what you're thinking, what I'm thinking is different. But if I say, totally new scene. Because Jim, I'm not going. How do you want to respond? No, no plot. Jim, I'm not going. But your mom's going to be so... Ah, that's plot. Fuck your plot. All right? Right. Fuck your plot. Now, Jim, I'm not going. This is just like last week. Now, that's plot. Jim, I'm not going. But you promised. Ah, lovely. We're closer. That's still in the past. Right? You promised. When you say you promised, now I got to go in my head and say, when did I promise? Where were we when I promised? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Great. Say it to me. Jim, I'm not going. You're going. I'm not going. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Which of those two scenes do you want to do? <laughs> the, the last one. The last one. Why? Because we're just we're just emotionally connecting in that moment. And when you said, I'm not going, that's exact, that's exactly what I wanted. That's what David, the actor, wanted you to say. Because the moment that we start throwing shit in there, it's like, but last Thursday, you talked it. Now watch what happens. And I'm very good at this. Last Tuesday, you talked to Denise when we were over waiting for the refrigerator to come from the hardware store. And you were saying, you know what? We could have gotten more money from the hardware store if we just spent more time there. But no, you had to go to the brunch with your cousin. Like, what the fuck? just happened to our scene. And the problem isn't the problem isn't the who, the what, and the where, the exposition. The problem is the actors don't know how to stop themselves at the moment that they are inspired. When I say inspired, what I mean is this, oh, he said something that just got my heart, you know? And attack that. And let go of your dumb plot, because that's all mental bullshit. I, w- I, wish, I, I wish I felt passionate about this. <laughs> yeah, you don't seem like you No, care. like, I don't care. I don't care. But when I see people doing that, and, you, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel this way. When I see people getting in a plot, I just shut down. I shut down. I shut down because I want, you know, it's like the, the first thing when you get a suggestion from the audience is you stand up on stage and you get a suggestion. And the first thing is like, can we have a location? Um, a bar mitzvah party. I don't know. So, okay, you're at a bar mitzvah party. And what's the first thing the two of us do if you do this thing on, um, Where's the bar mitzvah? Uh, okay, we're at a bar mitzvah party. And it takes that initial moment to figure out what our role here is. Bar mitzvah party. What's a bar mitzvah? I know what a bar mitzvah is. And then we have to figure out who's the, if there's a bar mitzvah boy, and is, am I your dad? As opposed to just throwing this line out, not getting a suggestion. I'm basing everything upon the, the, the shape that your body is in right now. And the shape is you look cocky. Your arms are at your sides, holding on to the table, they're holding on to the, the chair, and I'm like, you look cocky to me. That's the suggestion. I'm like, you're not everything that you think you are, Carl. Right? So at that moment, we don't have to figure dick out. Because at that moment that you've got your hands here like this, aren't you going, why did David say that? Oh, because my arms are like this. Right? Except that. And know that the one thing you can't do is what you did, which is release that. Take your arms away from that side. And now it's like, oh, fuck. Well, this scene isn't about that anymore. Because you don't think that you're enough. You think that you have to be something more than this. With your arms on the chair like this. And so what I don't want people to do is have to figure anything out. I was kind of going to ask you a question of openings or no openings. But but I figure I can already guess the answer to that. Because you're... Because you're going even further and saying, no, it's, it's not one word or a monologue. Your preference is, is nothing. Well, it's not nothing. It's accepting what it is that we have right now and knowing that this is enough. Right, right. Kind of like the, the TJ and Dave philosophy of like, there's already a story going on. When the lights come up, we're, we're going to be in that story. And, you know. Keep in mind, Dave Pasquese and I started at the same time with Dell in that class that we talked about. I always wonder if there's like a fear, because even though sometimes I feel like people don't necessarily need a, a word for inspiration, I don't know if there's like a fear of 
of that the word somehow like allows you to convince the audience what that it's improvised. Oh yeah, well that's the main thing right there. Fuck the audience. Fuck them. I don't have to prove anything to them. Okay, here's this, what's the name of the show? The name of the show is the Improv Show at the Improv Theater with the Improv Tears Improvising. And I have to prove to you that we're improvising? What more do you want? Why? Why do I have to prove that to you? If you think that we're not improvising, I'm doing a good job. I'm doing a really good job because you think this shit's written. That is true. I guess I guess if the goal is to do improv that is so impressive that people don't believe it's improv, then I don't know why you're imposing things onto it. To prove it to you, I don't have to prove dick to you. I don't have to prove anything to you. Am I paying attention to you? Yeah. But here's the thing. Audiences are wrong nine times out of ten. Nine times out of ten. And when you say, can I have a suggestion for a household object, you're going to get spatula each and every fucking time. But if I say to you, what don't you want rammed up your ass? Now now we're on to something. But the majority of people that are getting suggestions for opening scenes aren't even taking the suggestions. And I'll give you an example. So let's take, can I have a household object? A spatula. Great, because it's always a fucking spatula. Where's the scene going to take place? In a kitchen. Goddamn right. Do you only find spatulas in the kitchen? No. 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 You don't. If I say, can I have a location? And someone says, a, a doctor's office. And you go, okay. So who has to be in a doctor's office? A doctor and a patient. Nope. Maybe a nurse. Nope. Oh, yeah, not who has to be. I thought you No, nobody. There is not a... You, that's not... Like, two electricians. An astronaut. But we, we go, you know what we have to do? The audience has this expectation, but fuck those expectations. Right. And because for me, I'm not going to do the scene that you've seen before. I'm not going to do it. Because that's why they call it a scene. Because you've already seen it. You know, <laughs> we've done that. We've done that scene. I've done that scene. I've watched that scene. I don't want to see that scene again. I have no desire to see that scene. Nor do you. If you're paying $24, and I hope you're paying $24 to come see my show, and I hope that I get three quarters of that. For me, you're paying money to see me do something unique. You're not paying me money to do something that you can see anywhere. And so I am going to give you the show. Now, how do we do that? We do this by thinking differently. How do we think differently? We think emotionally because each of us is walking around with this great source of inspiration called our heart, our gut, and our creativity. And each of us has something different coming in. So if I'm going to do a scene that I've already seen, that's no fun. And here's another thing. Then I have to remember how the scene goes. And the moment that I have to remember how the scene goes, I'm in my fucking head. And I'm just recreating something for you, and I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that at all. If I was interested in recreating something that you've already seen before, there's a tool that a lot of theaters use to make that happen, and it's called a script. <laughs> and I'm not using it, your stupid script, for a variety of reasons. But, <laughs> you know, that's it. One more quick, yeah, sure. quick question, I guess. Uh, well, I'd really love to talk about the shape comes from viewpoints, but... So in your opinion, is is that how you start a scene where, and, and I don't know if it's always shaped, because there's obviously the, the multiple viewpoints. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, is, is that kind of how you start a scene where however the other, whatever the other person's shape is, yes. that's the initiation? Yes. And so that's your, a suggestion. Yes. your first line is really the, the in response second to that. line? My first, yes. My first line is in response to one of the nine viewpoints. And I, uh, and if you want to give a link to what the nine viewpoints are, one of the nine viewpoints. So the viewpoints is what shape are you in? That's how you're sitting. What gesture are you in? So it's shape, gesture. How far are we from each other? Distance, spatial relationship, tempo. What are you doing in what tempo? And all of that is inspiring to me. So I've got nine different points to get to you. The point, the main thing being, if I'm in response to something that you're already doing, we naturally start our scene in the middle. If I get a suggestion for a location, then we're starting a scene. If I am grabbing something from you that you're already doing, then you're already doing it. And we are clearly in the middle. So the the viewpoints, and that's viewpoints with a ca capital V, uh, there are nine viewpoints. They were first realized by this woman named Mary Overly, and then they were codified by this woman named Anne Bogart and this woman named uh, Tina Landau, by those two women. And when you look at those nine viewpoints and you work on those nine viewpoints, I mean, it is awesome. You don't have to think. You just have to respond. I don't want you to be eager to talk. I want you to be eager to respond. Because when you're eager to talk, then that's just something that I'm coming up with. But when I'm eager to respond, I cannot wait to find out what you want me to say. 
And that is where the service comes in. Because I am, as you mentioned earlier, I am in service to you. We are in service to each other. And anytime you bring something in that has nothing to do with what's going on, I'm no longer in service to you. Now I'm in service to me. And where does that leave you? Because this is about collaboration, connection, uh, the realization that I am not alone in this world because essentially all improvisation is, is an existential experience into what is it that you're feeling in this moment in relationship to somebody else. All right. I think that's great. I think that's a great, great place to end. I figured that. <laughs> <laughs> you're a pro. Thank you so much. Really great. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's me again, your host, Clayton Mashad. I said at the beginning of this episode that I would share some notes with you, and so instead of doing my usual outro, I figured I'd do a technical appendix of sorts, and so I'm going to share with you some of the notes from my workshop that I took with Dave Rosowski. Alright, so the main topic of this workshop was focusing on what inspires you as the improviser, Start by sharing some quotes, some notes, and then some exercises that you can use if you want to work on some of these techniques. The only thing that you know or own is how you feel in that moment. So feel, don't think. Uh, he goes on to say, cleverness is an ego-based way of looking at things. Another great quote related to that is, your brain is an asshole and a liar, but your heart is always true. So another great quote related to that is, if you personally experience a moment of change and ignore it, then you have to pretend to feel a feeling that you're no longer feeling. Rather, surrender that original feeling and embrace the new feeling you're feeling. Another related quote, we don't know what the scene is about until it's over. Stop going somewhere and be here now. Another interesting thing, so a lot of the time we'll say, you always, to drive home a game, but he has this quote, when you add an always, we add a false history, which we may not need. I guess the lesson there is only use always when you think it's totally necessary. Uh, he had some interesting notes on questions. So he's not a huge believer in the idea that you're not allowed to ask questions, even in an initiation. So what he says is, there are no questions, only statements. And the idea there is don't answer questions, respond to tone. So there's a big difference between what are you doing and what are you doing? Another cool quote he says is, there's no such thing as a figure of speech. So if your scene partner says something that in the real world would be figurative, like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, then your response should be that you actually think that that person might eat a horse. Some other great quotes. Uh, so here's a great one about conflict. So improv comedy is not rooted in conflict. It's rooted in tension. There's some other uh, random quotes. If you want to be interesting, be interested. I think Dave said that in our interview. Another cool thing he says is, be eager to respond, not eager to talk. I think he also said that in the interview, and he follows that up with, I can't wait to find out what I don't know about my character. And that fits into the idea of, stop going somewhere, be here now. So there's also a cool quote that we kind of talk about in the podcast, kind of related to the TJ and Dave philosophy. Whatever we're watching was already going on before we started watching it, and that's how you should treat your improv scenes. All right, so in this interview, we, we didn't really have time to touch on viewpoints, so I'll go through the viewpoints for you now. So there are nine viewpoints. The first one is shape. That's the major one. He talks about how usually he takes the other player's shape as the suggestion instead of taking a, a word from the audience. And so that's really just all about body language. You read what the other person's body language is saying, and then you respond to that. The second viewpoint is gesture. Then we have tempo, which is just obviously the speed. So that's something that you can play with. You can even have contrast where there's a, a fast-tempoed player and a slow-tempoed player, and it says a lot about the characters. The fourth one is repetition. And so he says repetition is not redundancy, it's just hunkering down. The fifth viewpoint is spatial relationship, so that's distance or the emotional content of distance. The sixth one is architecture, so that's your surroundings, so that could be anything. That could be the chairs that you're using, it could be the size of the stage, could be the lighting, could be some background noise of sirens go by. The seventh viewpoint is topography. The eighth one is duration, so how long things are going, how long someone is talking for, how long someone is doing object work. And the last one is the kinesthetic response. 
So when someone sneezes and you say, God bless you, when a siren goes off and you cover your ears, when someone says your name and you turn towards them, those are all kinesthetic responses. If you're interested in learning more about viewpoints, I'm sure you can Google viewpoints and improv. I know there are a lot of articles out there. Uh, lastly, we're just going to talk about the exercises that we did in the class, so in case you want to work on some of these principles. The first exercise we did, it's just one person talking to Dave or the coach, and so based on your shape, he gives you an opening line, and you just repeat that. You're heightening it. You're using this idea of creative adjacency, so you're just slowly building what you say. I'm so mad. I'm so mad. I can't believe you do this. You've broken my heart. I don't think I'll ever be the same again. I think I'm going to kill myself. And at that point, you're changed, right? You've reached this totally different level, but all you're doing is repeating the same idea over and over. So it's playing on this idea of repetition, but you still end up with this emotional change. And the big takeaway there is don't go back. So once you say you broke my heart, don't go back to I'm so mad. Once you're going to kill yourself, don't go back to I don't know what I'm going to do. All right, so that's a pretty simple one. You could just do that with two people. And you don't even really need that other person to give you that, that first line, right? You could come up with it on your own. The second exercise that we did is two people were facing Dave. So you know, two people could be facing the coach or a third player. Based on the shape that those two players are in, he gives them an opening line to say. Both people are talking to that person. So they're sitting in two chairs and they're facing that third person. They're both talking to him. They go back and forth addressing that person. It's the same idea as in the first one. You're just repeating this line. You're heightening it, building on it, saying things that are kind of adjacent to it, like I said in the first example. And then when one player says something that stands out or is unusual or they're changed or something that's, that's different, like I think I'm going to kill myself, the other person turns their chair 90 degrees towards them and calls out that thing in the same way that you'd kind of do an unusual thing in the game. And the other person stays facing the person that they're both talking to and waits until the other person says something that changes them, and then you turn towards them. And then you just start having this scene, and it's it's a super interesting thing, because he's not teaching it in the sense of game. He's not teaching game at all, but it really reinforces that idea of you're waiting for this unusual thing. Once you recognize the unusual thing, you turn the chair and start calling that out, but they're not changed. They're just continuing to heighten and do this thing that they're doing. And then when the other person says something weird, then that person turns. And then by that point, you really do have a dynamic. It's a super interesting way. So I think if you were teaching game, even if you weren't teaching these specific methods that he's doing, I think even if you were just teaching game and trying to get people to recognize game and trying to get people to play the game, I think this is a great exercise. And so a lot of these exercises play with vagueness. So I've heard Krakowski say that pronouns are the, the enemy of improv. And obviously we all know that you're not supposed to talk about it, you're supposed to say what it is, but a lot of these exercises we purposely played with vagueness. And so in this third exercise, it's similar to exercise one, but once you get to that period, once you get to that, I can't believe you did this, I'm so mad, you broke my heart, I'm going to kill myself. Once you get to that period, that end line where you're emotionally changed, then the class guesses where you wouldn't expect this to take place, or be between. So just it's just one person facing the coach, facing out. There doesn't even necessarily have to be a person there. They could just be talking to a ghost person. So using that same example, I can't believe you did this. I'm so mad. You broke my heart. I'm going to kill myself. Then they would guess where it's supposed to be. And so one of the things that he says is make a big deal out of little things and make a small deal out of big things. So the way that you would do that exercise is I'm so mad. I'm going to kill myself. Then you would all try to guess what would be what would be the funniest situation. And you might say, he's talking to the pizza delivery boy, right? I can't believe you did this. How could you be 15 minutes late with my pizza? All right, the fourth exercise that we did, similar. So it's two people talking about it. You never name it. So I can't believe you're wearing that to the party. What's wrong with this? It makes me feel comfortable. I like it. I really can't believe you wore that to the party. That's totally inappropriate. What do you mean? I like it. It, it makes me feel like myself. You know, yada, yada, yada. And then at some point, uh, once the context is revealed, you know, once you have that developed scene, then you reveal, you reveal what this thing is. And it's the same idea of make a small thing out of a big thing or make a big thing out of a small deal. Right. So in that situation, I can't believe you're wearing that to the party. It's totally inappropriate. But what do you mean? It makes me feel good. It makes me feel like myself. 
be like, yeah, but it's it's the school mascot outfit. You're not supposed to wear the school mascot outfit to a party or whatever. All right, and then the fifth exercise we did is just free form. So just two people looking at each other. One person says something, the other person responds, and they really just repeat that. And so, you know, there are classic rules. Don't ask questions. Don't be strangers. Say what the it is. Say what the pronoun that you're talking about is. But I saw some great scenes that were literally between two strangers talking about something that we didn't know what they were talking about, and it was all questions. And so the scene was just, where did you go right now? And the person said, I'm not going to tell you. No, where did you go right now? I'm not going to tell you where I went. Where did you go right now? I'm not telling you. And it ended up turning into this great scene that developed into, it was an interrogation where the police was interrogating a, a suspect. And just by repeating this thing over again, the person said, I'm not going to tell you. Tell me where you went. And ended up, you know, standing out of their chair, <laughs> knocking the chair over. And it was great because it was a hilarious scene, but it was literally between two people that didn't know each other, someone asking a question. It was totally repetitious. There was literally nothing going on. It was just a person saying, tell me where you went. No, I'm not going to tell you. And they just kept building. If you don't tell me where you're going to go, I'm going to get mad. And it just kept heightening in that same way that we talked about. We were just slowly building on everything, but it's still repeating, just slowly growing. And by the end, they turned into hilarious scenes. And it was really surprising because, like I said, you're literally breaking all of the rules of improv. The initiation was a question. The person didn't answer it, didn't say anything, didn't say where they went. They're talking about some location, but they're, you know, never addressing what it is. And it was still a hilarious scene. And so we did lots of scenes like that where it'd be, well, that looks expensive. Well, you know, sometimes I like to indulge. I mean, that looks really expensive. Yeah, but I, I think I deserve it. I work hard. That looks really expensive. I, are you sure you can afford that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, work hard, play hard. They just keep repeating those things, but slowly you know, adding more detail, but not adding any plot, not adding any backstory, not adding anything about who those two people are. And then in the end, it turns out to be something that's totally ridiculous. Obviously, so you're making a big deal. You're acting like something is really expensive. So you'd want to say, yeah, but I mean, everyone knows that movie popcorn is overpriced or, you know, something that really, you know, you're having this whole argument of that looks expensive. No, I like to splurge. I deserve it. Oh, I don't know. Are you sure you can afford that? And it just turns out to be something trivial. Movie popcorn isn't the best example, I guess. Could be something stupid. In the class, it was a plastic napkin ring. So it's great because a lot of the time, I think we've all ended up in that situation where you're talking about some it. Like, oh, here's your birthday present. Oh, it's really nice. Oh, I hope you like it. It took me a long time to pick out. Oh, yeah, how did you know I wanted something like this? And obviously, a lot of the time you keep thinking in that in that scene, like, oh, I'm purposely... Well, so you might not purpose... You might be purposely not saying it because you think that the other person knows what it is. Right? So you don't want to be rude. Shouldn't do that. If you don't think the other person knows what it is and it's important for it to, for the scene to move on, then you can call it out. But we really just played with this idea of not naming it. You build up stakes around it. So you either act like it's a really big thing or it's a really small thing. And then you do the foil, right? Where it turns out to be the opposite. And it's hilarious. But I think you really need the other person to be on the same page and realize what's going on. So an example where you could do something that where you're making a small deal out of something is, oh man, I can't believe we missed it. Ah, yeah, there'll be another one. Yeah, but I mean, we always forget about things. We're always late. It's just, I don't know. I wish we were more punctual. Ah, uh, well, you know, just, listen, there's there's going to be another one soon. We don't really need to stress out about it. Just, it it's fine. You know, we missed this one. We'll get the next one. Ah, uh, yeah, I know. I'm just upset that we missed it. Well, mom's dead. I don't think she's going to notice if we weren't at her funeral. Or, yeah, but I'm sure mom's funeral was going to be boring anyway. So you're, you know, you're acting like it's something trivial, like, oh, we missed the bus, but there's going to be another one, and then you foil it and you have it. 
turn out to be something super serious. However, if you notice there, I couldn't help myself from adding always and adding backstory. I said, you know, we always miss things. And so that may or may not have been unnecessary backstory. And so what makes these scenes really successful is this idea that I think I've heard Ian Roberts refer to as mapping, right? So you you start with, you have this, this context, right? So it's, you know, maybe low stakes. And the example that I just did, it was, you know, it sounded like they were missing a bus. That's the thing that made sense. The thing that made the least amount of sense is that they were just casually talking about missing their mom's funeral, right? And so that tilt happens in the other person, the person who didn't reveal a foil, they don't all of a sudden switch and start acting as if, you know, trying to justify why they're acting nonchalant about a big deal or why they're making a big deal out of a small thing. They continue to act like it was that thing that made sense. So say you were doing a scene and it was, dude, get your hands off of her. Dude, why are you freaking out? What's the big deal? I said, don't touch her. What, what's wrong with you, man? That ain't cool. You know she's mine. Dude, calm down, man. Why are you, why are you freaking out? Dude, you're looking at her. I can, I can see you're looking at her. Yeah, dude, what's the big deal? It's only a bicycle. Right, once that tilt, you know, it, it seems like they're talking about something that is a big deal. You know, one friend is trying to pick up the other friend's girlfriend or wife. And so that's the thing that makes sense, right? The foil is some low stakes about <laughs> someone touched or is looking at your bike. That doesn't really make any sense. So that person doesn't start justifying why they feel that way about their bike. They're like, yeah, you know, but I, I had to do my paper route. I had to wake up at 5 a.m. every morning to do that paper route for six months to afford that bike. I don't want anything to happen to it. Or, well, you know, that, that was my grandfather's bike and he left to me in his will. You know, once the foil happens, you don't start playing as if you're now aware of this new thing. You continue to play exactly the way you were playing before. So you would continue to act like it's a bike. Yeah, dude, get your hands off of her. She's mine. I don't know what makes you think that she'd be into that. I don't know what... You're going to try to ride her? What type of perverted family are you from, you bunch of heathen sickos? And that's really the crux of how you do a good, straight, absurd scene. That person's being absurd because they won't even let their friend look at their bike. And the way you do that is you're mapping it to a thing that makes sense for that behavior. So they were, you know, they're acting a certain way. Well, what makes sense for why they would act that way? The other person tilts it for a thing that doesn't make sense for comedic effect. And then that person continues to act like they're acting about the thing that does make sense. All right, so I think that's pretty much it. I know I didn't go into super detail about the viewpoints, but uh, it's something I still want to learn more about. So if you know about it, why don't you come on my podcast and we can talk about it. All right, as always, thanks for listening, rate and review us, and I'll see you next episode.